Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. I want to share a message with you this morning. I've entitled The Stewardship of Life. If you've ever done any target shooting, you shot rifles, shot a bow, air rifles, anything you've done with target shooting, you know this. If you are off by a little bit right here, you're going to be off by a lot out there, right? Let's just imagine that we've got everything pointed, everything's headed directly toward the bullseye, we've got everything lined up, and everything is perfect. But if I'm off, just a millimeter or so here, the further away that shot is, the further that bullet's going to travel in the wrong trajectory. And so when it gets to the, to the target, I could completely miss the target by just being a little bit off right here. I believe that our society in a lot of ways, people that we live with, work with, family members, people that we know, friends, I believe that when we differ in opinion. When it comes to, to, to the things we talk about and we discuss, the differences in, in opinion out there are because we are starting from different spots here. A little bit off here or there can cause problems out there. It's true when you're shooting at targets, and it's true when you have a worldview that is not biblical. If the target or the aim is for us to glorify and honor God, if us to have a, a biblical approach, a biblical end, a biblical worldview from the beginning is vital. And if we're off a little bit right here, by the time we get out here, we're out into these regions, which is a problem, right? Today what I want to do is I want to start something today, this um, this week and, and probably through the month of November at least, we'll be looking at some things. I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be preaching about some hot-button issues. And I don't tend to do that. I don't tend to stand up here and just tell you everything that I'm against or that we're against or that the Bible's against, right? Usually my method is we take a book of the Bible and we preach through it. But if you think about the things that we discuss most often, the things that we discuss when it comes to politics and culture and all those sort of things... Sometimes the verses that address those things are in very few places in Scripture. So we don't come to them, right? If I preach for two years from the book of Matthew and those things aren't mentioned in the book of Matthew, then we don't come to them, see? So it's important in the culture that we live in that you hear how I feel about these things and how the Bible, what the Bible has to say about these particular issues in our culture. I realize that as I begin to preach over the next few weeks, I realize that I'm going to be trying to present a case from Scripture, but many people in our society do not view the issue as I do. I get that. You may sit here and you may say, David, I don't agree with you. Listen to me. Listen to the argument. You may, fin you may finish listening to me and you may still not agree with me, but I hope you know my heart. Even if you disagree with me, I hope you know my heart. And so listen to these messages. Listen to these messages over the next few weeks, and I will tell you that when you think about these hot-button issues, how we get to this is the, the series that I had planned to preach this month was about stewardship. 
And then some of these things started to come up. And the more I began to look at these issues that we argue about, that we debate about on a political front or whatever, it's not those issues that we're talking about. It's this worldview. It's the fact that we differ out there because we don't start from the same worldview of stewardship. That's the issue. When I say stewardship, you may say, David, what do you mean by that? You're talking about money, right? When you say stewardship, you're talking about our giving of our money. Okay, well, maybe. Maybe in a context, yes. But what, what it goes, it's much broader than that. The subject of stewardship, the reason that we give to the ministry, the work of the Lord, is in part and parcel because we have this view from the get-go about stewardship. This is what we believe. God is sovereign and in control of everything. And in, in all of this world, everything that's in it was created by him. He is the owner. The Bible says in Colossians 1, let me read this passage, Colossians 1 and 15, speaking about Christ, saying he is the, invisible, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It was by him that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The glory of God, the target, right? And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is Paul on the uh, Mars Hill preaching in Athens, remember? And he quotes, uh, he gives them a, a, a secular quote, and he says to them, you know, when I'm talking about God here, it's in God that we live and we move and we have our being. This is us. This is us. Everything is his. He is the owner. We are not. We are stewards. Remember when over in Genesis 1, for time's sake, I'm not going to read it, but remember God said, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds there and everything that crawls on the face of the Remember that? And when he says, let them have dominion, it's not the dominion of ownership, it's a dominion of stewardship. I have given this, and they're to manage and, and to, to work the land. That was part of that, remember? This idea that they're to be stewards of what I have given, this creation that I have provided, this thing that is for me and by me and subsists because of me, they are stewards. You and I are just stewards. And because we are stewards, that means we are accountable for everything we have. I believe that. I believe that I say to you, I have a house and I have a car and I have whatever, right? I have been gifted these things. I have been made a steward of those things. All of those things I'm to care for and I'm to treat as if they are not mine, but they are on loan from someone else. That includes my family. That includes my children. That includes the money in my billfold. It includes every single thing I have because I am not an owner. I have nothing. It is by him that all things were created and by him that all things subsist. If that's the case, he's the owner. I'm the steward. And we get off out here because we're not lined up here. The moment that we say, I'm in control, it's my life, all the things I have, I've earned it, I'll do with it what I want to, we've missed the target. Because the, the aim is not right here. The worldview is not right here, right out of the barrel. 
we got problems, right? So let's, let's do this. I want to approach all of these topics from the area of stewardship. And today, we want to talk about this area that we are made stewards of life. We are made stewards of life. And I'm going to tell you before I read this passage of Scripture, I'm going to give you these messages. I'm intending on using the same exact outline every week because we're going to talk about what the Bible says about it, what the world says about what the Bible says, and then how we can be obedient to what the Word of God says in light of everything else that's said about it. So every, any topic I discuss, today it's the issue of sanctity of human life, abortion, those sort of topics. But we could be talking about anything. This outline is going to remain the same. Let's read this passage. And I will tell you that some of the same scripture references, some of the same quotes, some of the same themes, all these things are going to be repeated. But it is only repeated to build the case over several weeks that we are the stewards, he is the owner in all of these topics. Let's start in Psalm 139 and verse 13, where we look at this idea of the stewardship of life. God is the giver of life, and we are the stewards. Psalm 139 and 13, David writes here and says of God, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Let's start with this. I want to give you, first of all, an overview of the Scripture. When we look at this Scripture, what does, this Bible, what does the Bible say about, about uh, life, about our, how, what should our view of abortion, euthanasia, these kind of topics, what should our, our view of them be? What should our, our thoughts about life be? This text, when we read it, I want you to note something about it before we ever dive into what's actually being said. I want you to note the tone of it. If you go through and you read all of Psalm 139, but especially the verses that we read, don't you gain from this that there's like this sense of wonder? Like when, when David's writing this, he's like, there's, God, there's nowhere I can go to escape from you. I can't lay down in my bed and escape from you. I can't run to a place and hide from you. If I was in the depths of the earth or under the ocean or on the high, I can't run from you. It's this awe of who God is. And God, I'm in awe because you have formed me. Everything I am, you have formed me. You have, and this idea even of life, like we even talk about it, right? Even, even a secular world would say this idea of this miracle of life, the miracle of life. Life is not something that we do. Life is something that only God does. And because that is the case, that he takes nothing and there's something. The fact that there's death, and then there's life. This is God. The fact that there's nothing, and then there's life. That's God. That is not us. We are incapable of that. We don't get it. Pulpit, pulpit commentary says this. A man designs a house or a machine, and his, with, his work is within limits that can be grasped. God designs a man, and the complications are beyond us. We can only wonder and adore, and that's what's happening here, right? 
The psalmist is, is thinking about how he has been formed and the fact that, that God is thinking about him. And, and it's, it's amazing because God even formed him, and this is unbelievable to him. Notice in the passage what this overview, as we kind of look at the overview of it all, what is this passage saying? And I want to draw your attention to some of the language that's used here because it's this idea that we believe, because of passages like this, that life begins at conception, not at birth. And that because life begins at conception and because God has formed us and with a purpose, verse 16 says he knows every one of our days. It has a purpose and God has, has, has noticed the language, how God has worked. This idea that God has formed every one of us uniquely. Notice some of the words that are used in like verse 13. I'm reading from the ESV, but I'll try to give you the correlating words if you have a King James. You formed my inward parts. Maybe it says covered in the King James. Knitted together. Go down to verse 15. It was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. All that's a euphemism for just the womb, right? Baby being born in the womb like a secret place, being intricate. But think about that. Intricately wrought, intricately woven. This idea of knitted together. The, the same word is used in Exodus, and it's translated in Exodus, it's translated embroidered. So the image I'm trying to get you to get in your mind is life is not something that a magic wand happens and with skill and care, God intricately weaves, God knits together life in the womb. Skill and care. Those are the words that when I hear those things, like woven, knitted, I've never really done any of this, right? But you get the idea that that idea of embroidery or knitting or woven, it takes time. Charles Spurgeon says, embroidered with great care is an accurate poetical description of the creation of veins, sinews, muscles, nerves, etc. What tapestry can equal the human fabric? It's this idea that we are being woven together like an embroidery or a knitting. It is intricate work. I have not done much of this, but I have done some of it. So I'd like to tell you about it. When Amy and I were dating, Amy was a crafter. And I would go to her house, and Amy would craft all the time. Amy was such an avid crafter, she had a craft room. And so sometimes I would go to her house, and I would do nothing but sit in the craft room, and I would do something, and she would do something. She would craft, and we would talk, and, you know, whatever else, right? Some of the things that I saw her do one time, I had had no experience with this, and one day she was cross-stitching. And I, I just noticed, I just observed it, I just watched it happen, Right? Never done this before in my life, but sometime later, I was at the Hobby Lobby in Dalton, I think, <laughs> and I passed by this aisle, I passed by this aisle, and on the end block was a cross-stitching packet, and it was a picture from a children's book that I knew had special significance for Amy. The boyfriend says, I'm going to get that, I'm going to figure out how to do that. She will be impressed, <laughs> and she will like the picture. So I take this thing. Now, you understand, there's all these colors. There's all this stuff. It's very complicated. There's, it's a chart, and it's a bunch of cross-stitching. And So I would go out on, with her on a date or whatever else. We would do our thing in the evening, and then I would come home, and in secret, 
after everybody went to bed, I would pull this out from a box I had under my bed, and I would work on it for a long time. You know what I mean? I'd work on it for a long time. The point is, with skill and care. Ooh. Thank you, Max. Now, I did not, but I want you to imagine a scenario where nobody knows I have bought this, right? Imagine the scenario. Nobody knows I've bought it. I'm working on it for Amy. I have not given it to her yet. She has no clue. Let's imagine that as I do this, I get the colors mixed up, and I use, uh, you know, the thread they've given me, I use all this thread from one thing, and the wrong thing, it's all messed up. Or, let's say I haven't accurately, like, charted out where it's going to exist on this piece of fabric, and I've got, you know, everything slid over, and I don't have room to fit the ears on. You know what I mean? And it's totally ruined. Done. And I get frustrated, and I take that thing, and I ball it up into a, you know, and I just throw it in the garbage. I get frustrated. I did not, obviously, that's not the story, but let's imagine that that happens, okay? I get frustrated and I throw it in the garbage. Who cares? It's not yours, right? It was mine. I bought it. I was working on it. I was whatever. It was, it was going to be a gift for Amy, but it wasn't hers yet. I hadn't given it to her. I'm doing my own thing with it, right? And I get frustrated and I throw it in the garbage. You could understand that point of view. Second story. My grandmother did lots of these things, right? All these kind of things, crochet, knit, crochet mainly, but knit and do whatever else. And I have vivid memories of Grandma Brown crocheting. She would sit on the far, if you're looking at the couch, she would sit on this end of the couch. She had a table there with all her stuff underneath it, and she would sit on the end of that couch, and she would crochet. She would do, you know, doilies and, and tablecloths, and like all these kind of things she would do. And so I have one of those things that she did, and I have, and I have, hang on, this is a very simple one, but, you know, she would crochet and make these things like this, you know, and she would do that. And I want to tell you about how Grandma Brown worked. This is, this is one of my favorite memories of Grandma Brown. When I see her in that living room, she's on her end of the couch, glasses are down, and she's crocheting, and the Braves are on the television, and she's, she's looking and looking and looking. She's back and forth, you know, and she's doing her thing. And there gets a point, if you're all in the living room and you're talking to her, then there's three things going on. She's crocheting and watching the Braves and then trying to tell you a story. And it's overload. It's, it cannot happen. And I have very clear memories of numerous times when Grandma was going. And, um, um, and then... Um, uh, and it would take her forever to get through anything because she was trying to watch and keep up with the count on the, you know, balls and strikes and count she's knitting here and tell you this story and it was overload and she couldn't do it, right? But let's imagine in all of the elaborate, intricate things that she crochets sitting on the edge of that couch, let's imagine that we're all in conversation and Grandma's trying to stutter her way through a story and I get fed up with it. I want to hear the end of it. I'm like, sp 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 spit it out. Let's go. And I go over and I take that crochet from her and I start ripping it to shreds and I get very angry because she hasn't told the story. You're right. It is. It's super mean. And there wouldn't be a person in the room that would sit in that room and allow me to do that to my grandmother and think that it was not mean because I don't have a right to do that. You know why? It ain't mine. It was hers. It was her time. It was her skill. It was her energy. It was her effort. It was her work. It was her creation. It was not mine. You might not be able to fault me if I throw those bunnies, cross-stitch bunnies in the garbage. 
Because it's mine. I could do with it what I wanted to. But if I take grandma's crochet and I cut it up or tear it up or do whatever else, it's mean. John Piper says this. And he's getting to the idea that this is a stewardship issue. When we think about life, particularly abortion, when we think about this, this is not a legal issue. It doesn't become right or wrong because a court somewhere has said that it's right or wrong. It's not a political issue. It's not that if one side has a better argument, whether it's right or wrong, it is or not. It's not even a simple moral issue as to what you feel about it being right or wrong. It's a God issue, and it goes right to stewardship. Listen to what John Piper said. Abortion is a God issue. And I think the first way you see that is in Psalm 139 when he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The language that is used is that a baby is knit together in its mother's womb. Well, who's the knitter? The knitter's not nature. The knitter is God, which means that what's happening in a woman's tummy is that God is at work. God is making a human being. No, you don't mess with that. You don't just get in God's face and say, let me at it. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to chop it into pieces. You don't do that. You don't do it for God's sake. God gives. God takes away. Gods make babies. We don't make babies. We put the pieces together through sexual relations, and God causes a being that never was and now is and always will be to come into being. This is God at work. And when God creates uniquely with skill and care, not when a baby is born long before that, when God is at work, it's no different than mean David ripping this out of grandma's hand, tearing it up, throwing it up, cutting it up, right? Same thing, same idea. This God who has intricately woven us together knows us intimately, right? We sang that this morning. He knows my name. He knows us. He knows everything about us. Matthew 10 says that even the very hairs on our heads are numbered, right? Jeremiah 1, when God is calling Jeremiah into the ministry, he tells Jeremiah, I knew you, and before your days, before any of them were, I knew that you would be a prophet. Before you ever were, there was a call on you before you were ever born, before I ever f started forming you, before you were ever conceived, there was a purpose and a plan for your life, Jeremiah. And if it's true for Jeremiah, it's true for every one of us, this idea that you are unique before him, you are the work of his hand, and given the truths that I think you find very clearly in 13 through 16, this, uh, this worldview that says God is owner, God is creator of life, God is at work, we're stewards, we're just responsible to him for that. We're accountable to him for that. But he's owner. And if we try to take that into our hands and say, no, 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 I own this, we end up out here. Not here. This is an overview of the scripture into why we believe that. But I want to take a few minutes to walk through some of the opposition to scripture that you find. What are some of the arguments where a person would say, Okay, David, I, I get what you're saying, but these are my beliefs. And they might argue, and I'm going to tell you three statements that I hear as kind of a rebuttal to this idea that life begins at conception, God is the owner, life is a thing that God does, not us. Here's what happens. And I'm, I will say that I don't want to be political here, but you kind of have to, we are divided that way, right? 
We even have terms for this, and I'm going to use them because we have terms, right? You tend to have two movements here. You have a pro-life movement, and you have a pro-choice movement, and people tend to identify in one of those two camps, right? So based on those two camps, what would you hear as arguments for abortion? Pro-life stance would say that abortion, if we ban abortion, we are infringing on the rights of women. Hear that all the time, right? So it's an, it's a, and I think it's important to note that. Because from this biblical position concerning abortion, our focus in what we've talked about is on the child. The argument from the pro-choice stance would say women should have freedom. They should have freedom to do what they want with their bodies. It's their bodies. And so to, to ban something would be to, to disallow them from doing something. And so one of the mistakes that we have made that have been made in the church Kim, as we talked about this morning, the finger-pointing moment is when we as the church paint a pro-choice stance or a person who holds a pro-choice view as a baby killer, right? We hold up the signs, we point our finger. The pro-choice person doesn't see themselves as a baby killer. Their focus is on the rights of the woman. These two political stances that we have come to is a, is a difference in the, where the rights are focused. A pro-choice person would be focused on the rights of the mother. A pro-life point of view would be focused on the rights of the child, the unborn child, right? And so I think it's really important that we kind of know, hear me very clearly. I believe a pro-choice stance is biblical. I believe a pro-choice stance is not. But we have for a long time made enemies of people without reasoning from the scriptures and without in love and compassion coming to a person and presenting what God has shown us from scripture. Why is this, oh no, why is this wrong? Why is this pro-choice stance wrong? Let's make no doubt about, no, no, let's be very clear. The choice that we're talking about is a choice to end a life. This decision to abort a baby is not an abortion of a pregnancy or the abortion of tissue. We are talking about a living thing. We believe, based on what we just read in Scripture, that in numerous other places in Scripture, that life begins at conception. But now the medical field might have different views. The medical field might say a person's alive if they have a detectable heart rate or brainwave activity, right? But even from the standpoint of abortion, if a baby has a detectable heartbeat at about 18 days old, abortions are happening after 18 days. If a baby has detectable brainwave activity after 40 days, and abortions are happening after 40 days, essentially 100% of abortions, right? Then what we're talking about here is this not even by my standards, not even by a biblical standard, just from, say, a, 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 a maybe a medical standard of heartbeat and brainwave activity, even from a medical standard, this is alive. It's not tissue. It's not an embryo. It's not a fetus. It's, not, it's a baby. It's alive. It is the work of God. 
And so the problem with this idea is, is that this idea of saying this idea that it's a, okay, David, it may be all those things. See how it's, it, it may be, it's, it's forming in that woman's body, and that woman has a right to do what she wants with her own body. If that's the determination you've come to, you know where you've gone off the rails? Right out of the barrel. It's not her own body. He's the owner. She's the steward. He owns her. He owns what is being developed in her womb because he's the giver of life to both. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. And I get the argument, but you're out here because you haven't started at this worldview that says God is owner. We are stewards. Even that very argument rings of this idea I am the master of my own destiny. I am the captain of my own ship. It is my body, and I will do what I want to do, and I don't care what you say. It starts from that spot, right? And this idea, this rebellion is at the heart of anything we have ever done. I'm guilty of that. I've never aborted a baby, but I'm guilty of that very thing. I have said somewhere along the way, God, you don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want to do because it's my life, it's my money, it's my time, it's my whatever, and you don't get a say in this. I'm going to do what I want to do. And you know where that gets me? And I should be here. Because if the attitude of my heart was, he's the owner, I'm the steward, this is where I would be. It would, it would be aiming me, it would be pointing me toward that end. But instead, I find myself out here, right? We're all guilty of that kind of idea, that sort of thinking. The second kind of argument that people will give you that you will hear is this idea, well, David, you know, abortion, you know, it's really necessary in certain cases. I mean, David, think about it. I mean, you know, rape or incest or any of these other things like, you know, uh, of health, health of the baby, health of the mother. Those, those things are important, David, and, and abortion should be, you know, should, should be valid in those cases, Right? I want to give you some numbers. <clears throat> These numbers are several years old, but not, they don't have to be recent to be fairly true. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, this is kind of the idea. And I want you to even note where they're from. This is from the Allen Gatmacher Institute. That is the research arm of pa Planned Parenthood. So the, the numbers that I'm giving you are not from some Georgia right to life or, you see what I'm saying? What I, the numbers I'm giving you are Planned Parenthood numbers. Of the abortion, there's going to be some overlap here because abortions happen for different reasons. When people are surveyed about why they have an abortion, there's different reasons here. But 1% of those, rape and incest. 1% of those due to some kind of fetal abnormality or the health of the baby, we could say, right? 4% of them, health of the mother. This is where the statistics start to get interesting. 50% of abortions that happen happen because it's either a single mother or a, a, a lady who says, I'm not really happy with my current relationship. I don't know the status of where it's going. And throw a baby into the mix right now, it's not, I don't know the, the status of my current relationship. So 50% fall into that camp. 66% say, I can't afford the child. 75% the child will interfere in my life. Did you hear the numbers that I just gave you? That means that 95% plus of the abortions that happen, even according to Planned Parenthood, 
have nothing to do with rape, incest, health of the mother, health of the baby. You know why we abort 95 plus percent of the time? Convenience. Convenience. It's easy. Gets rid of the problem. Just done. This is, a, this is an issue. We are destroying what God has intricately woven together. We are destroying. We are ripping out of his hand, cutting up, throwing away. We are taking away what he has intricately woven together because of convenience. Because life shouldn't be hard or none of these things should be difficult or whatever else. And Okay, but let's, let's, another thing I have to, you're going to say a lot of times today, David, I think you're meddling at this point. You kind of got off of it. But I may not be wrong. Um, we, we all, this idea of convenience to the very heart of the issue, this is where we're at. We have said, I want to do what I want to do. Remember the worldview? Let's, let's, uh, rewind past all these reasons why a person would have an abortion. Let's just be frank and honest. Um, God does life, but there are biological, biological components that have to come together, right? God has made it so that babies don't just fall out of the sky. You know what I mean? Like they happen for a reason. We know why they happen, right? And because that's the case, what we have said is, that's, that statement says, David, I want to do what I want to, when I want to. I'm not worried about the consequences. I want to behave how I want to behave in this moment, and I don't want to worry about the consequences later. I'll handle that. I'll handle those when it comes. But right now, this is, and I don't want to have any excuses. I don't want to feel any judgment. Or any, I want to behave this way, and who cares the consequences? That's a stewardship issue. That's saying, I am the owner of my life. I'm the owner. And I'll decide what I do when I do it. And the problem is, is where it puts us at the end. It, it starts there, but the problem is where it gets us at the end, right? And so when it comes to most, most cases, these are, these are extremities that we're talking about, right? When we're talking about abortions in our country, we're not talking about these fringe cases, Right? We're talking about that we want to act as the owner. We want dominion over our own lives. We don't want to be the steward. I'm going to give you one more, and this last argument has two arms. You'll hear, it's the same argument, but it has two arms. And one of them is political, and one of them is theological. This is the other thing I hear. Well, if you're so concerned about life, why do you fill in the blank? You're pro-life? Well, if you're so concerned about life, why do you? Because let's face it, we've, they have worked us to the point that every one of us feel as if we have on some kind of jersey, right? We got on a red jersey. We got on a blue jersey. We fight for the team. We, all of our views have to be this way or all of our views have to be that way. And so well, let's just face it. Some, sometimes somebody will make an, a, an assumption that if you are a pro-life person, then you hold other certain views, right? That may be in conflict, they believe, with this pro-life stance. So, for instance, you believe in life, you, you, you think of the sanctity of human life, well, then how do you support the death penalty? 
You believe in the value of human life? Why are you a gun owner if you, if you believe in the value of human life, right? The, oh, here's the one that's really been politicized, right? If you believe in life, why don't you have a mask on everywhere you go? I know, I've said it. But let's go back, to, let's go back and let's look at some of those. What we're talking about here is, is not a, a direct conflict with Scripture. In fact, I think an argument's to be made uh, for, if you hold those views, an argument's to be made even from Scripture from some of them. If you believe in the value of life, why would you condone the death penalty? Well, I know that in Genesis 9, God establishes government in a very informal way, not to a king or a court, to Noah's family as they come off of the ark. And what God decrees through government is this, uh, if a man has shed the blood of another man, that man's blood shall be shed. This idea of this capital, this death penalty is in effect, it's there in Genesis 9, that's the first mention. You get it repeated in the Old Testament law. You get it again over in Romans 13 when we're told to be good citizens, when we are to honor uh, those that are in power over us. And it says this, it says that he does not wield the sword in vain. In other words, this this extension, this government has been, it, it also has been created and is sustained, all those things, by the power and dominion of God. He is the owner, right? We are the stewards, and we mess it up a lot. But he's the owner. He's the owner. And so this idea of, of that, this is a scriptural thing, Right? You can just go down the list, any of that, right? I mean, as a gun owner myself, I would say to you that having been taught the power of a, of a firearm and the danger and the safety that goes along with it and being taught the value for human life, it should make me a more conscientious gun owner when it comes to safety. You go through all the whatever else. These are not, what happens here is, is it's a dramatic thing that we talk about and it's like a gotcha moment, right? While you can make a, I think you just steer it the other direction. Right? This is just kind of a semantics kind of idea. And I'll tell you the one that goes to, if this doesn't work politically, I'll tell you where it goes biblically, theologically. Well, David, if you believe in the value of life, and if God's the creator of life, the well, way you say yes, then why do I read in the Old Testament where they go into the promised land and they just slaughter entire cities? Where's the value of life there, David? Mm, it's a heavier question, Right? I will tell you this, I would say that people who make that argument know something about the Bible, but I don't think they know the Bible. There are times in Scripture when you do find those things happening, where God punishes entire nations, cities. God doesn't enjoy it. I know so because Ezekiel 33, 11, God says to Ezekiel, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? He's not talking to some pagan nation over yonder. He's talking to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And let's face it. This God in the Old Testament that's painted as being so bloodthirsty, where's he at with Jonah and Nineveh? Like when God 
says that city's going to be, if they don't repent, that city's going to be destroyed. And then they repent. And it's Jonah, not God. It's not God sitting in heaven saying, well, doggone it, they repented. Now I can't kill them all. Man, I really wanted to do that. It's been a long time since I blasted a city off the planet, and I really wanted to do it this time. They caught me off guard. It's not, what the, it's not the way the book of Jonah goes. It's, it, that's, not, that's not what God's saying there, right? This is a God who is merciful and long-suffering. And if you go to this idea, when people reference that, especially about like them going into the promised land, I don't know if you know it or not, but in Genesis, when God calls Abraham, Abraham, this is 400 years before they go into the promised land. Listen to what he tells Abraham. This is from Genesis 15. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, Egypt. And they'll be servants there. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But they'll come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is what God says. They are right now, the Amorites right now, Abraham, are being disobedient to me. There are pagan people. They do not honor me. They do not worship me. But I, I'm, I'm trying to draw them to me. But they ain't going to listen. They're going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's going to keep going down this path. And I'm going to be merciful and long-suffering for 400 years. And they won't turn to me. They'll be even worse. And punishment will have to come. And when you leave Egypt and you need a place to go and you come into the promised land, there's going to be a people. I'm going to use you as an instrument to exact judgment there. And when they come, by the time you get to 400 years, fast forward 400 years to the Amorites and the people living in Canaan at that time, we're talking about ritualized prostitution. We're talking about child sacrifice to the god Molech. We're talking all this stuff. that It's gotten... And God says, this is important. This, this is really important. You can't go into that land and exist alongside them because I desire a purity among my people. Remember in Deuteronomy 7 when God says, you, you, can't, you don't need to intermarry with all these pagan stuff, right? You can't intermarry with, these, with this pagan stuff. That's, by the way, that's not even a racial argument, Right? That the people like put, that's not even a racial argument. What's being said there is you don't need to marry into a culture that dishonors me because what's going to happen is if you go there, you're going to be drawn away into this dishonor. So are your children. It's, it's, it's not, I'm, I desire a purity among my people. I desire people who are, who are focused on me and who are honoring me. And if you go off that way, you're being influenced in a way that you shouldn't be influenced. And I, I don't want that outside influence to, to, to damage you. And so God said that those two things can't be. I would say this to you too. We like to think that our sin exists in a vacuum. But what happen, what's happening with the Amorites, what's happening with these places that you find in Scripture, sin is affecting the lives of numerous people. We live in a fallen world, and sometimes I not only bear the consequences of my own sin, sometimes I bear the consequences of yours too. Imagine the family of the drug addict. The family has nothing to do with that, right? The drug addict 
takes and abuses and puts the whole family through turmoil at no fault of the family. One person's sin has affected numerous people. And I don't know if you're drawing a connection just yet or not, but I believe abortion to be sin. And that sin of a person is affecting the life of an unborn one. Our sin is not, it does not exist in a vacuum. In fact, I would say that our sin is directly related to the health of a nation. When you find people in Scripture, when you find nations in Scripture, like the Amorites, like the Israelites, you, you name it, whatever. When a nation goes out here, when a nation is messed up here in their stewardship view, and they end up out here, do you know what happens to those nations? It's not good. And there is a repeated pattern, and America is not exempt. Go all the way back. One of my favorite quotes, and you're going to hear this over the next month. You will hear it so much that hopefully you will be able to quote it as I am now. Constitutional Convention, the issue was not abortion. The issue was slavery. And George Mason, one of our founding fathers, George Mason said this. Listen to what he says, and it's really important. Because nations are not judged in the hereafter as people, providence says that national sin brings national calamity. Do you know what that means? The United States of America is not going to stand before the throne of God. You and I will stand before the throne of God. And the attitude that we have taken as a people, right, will... It's not judged there. That It's judged by what happens with God here. If we as a nation start approving of what God has condemned, we put ourselves in a spot where we are going to be under the condemnation of God. And when we say, oh, you want to take what God has intricately woven and destroy it and tear it all up? Yeah, that's probably all right. I'm sure God doesn't care. Even if he does, forget God. I mean, it's your body. You decide. When that's our thumbs up as a nation, when that is the consensus as a nation, and we are approving of what God has said we should not do, we put ourselves in a spot where the health of our nation is at stake. And hear me, I believe in every one of these cases, every one of them, that George Mason quote is extremely important. Because when somebody says, David, you shouldn't be able to tell somebody else what they can and cannot do. I'm trying to persuade them. I don't want my kids living in a nation that is experiencing the judgment of God. I don't want you. I don't care how much I disagree with you. I don't want you living in a nation that is experiencing the condemnation of God, the punishment of God. This whole idea that opposition is there is true, right? But the truth of the matter is God is the owner. We are the stewards. And all of those arguments start from a spot that does not recognize God as the owner. Back to that idea, I know that last one, I know that last kind of argument that people use, it definitely comes from a spot that's not here. Because as hard as it is for us, God does not owe us a thing. Why do babies die? Why did God take him so young when God takes a life, God is not being cruel. 
Because God is only taking something that already belonged to him to begin with. While many of us live much longer than Allison or Hayden or any of the children that we've had in our church that have died, right? While most of us live longer than them, every heartbeat, every breath, every day is a gift from him. And we believe that because we're starting here. He is God. He is sovereign. The life I have, I don't own. I've been given him. I'm a steward of this life that he's given. So therefore, I am accountable. I'm accountable for what I do. I'm accountable for what I believe. I'm accountable for how I, for everything. Because it's not my life. And that is, while that is true for everyone, it is apparent as a Christian. It is very apparent. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The starting place is wrong and we get out here. The starting place is right. We end up with this right view of God which doesn't ask the question, <laughs> which doesn't ask the question, why does God I'm not God. He's God. He can do what he wants to. He's God. Overview of the scripture. Opposition to the scripture. But I want to give you one more. Let's talk about obedience to the scripture. I know what time it is. Um, obedience to the scripture. What are some things that we can do? What are some things that we can do because we believe this? In spite of what many people believe, how can we be obedient to this view? In our day-to-day -day life, you and I should revere God as the giver and the sustainer of life in our day-to-day -day life. Yeah, it matters when I go and I vote. I believe I should vote those convictions. Yeah, it matters. But you know where it comes into play for me? Listen to this. I have three boys I make that statement and you don't bat an eye because you know that I have three boys. But when I make that statement, be very clear about what I'm saying. I'm not saying I have three boys. What I'm saying is God has been gracious enough to grant three boys into my care and I'm responsible. I'm responsible. I'm responsible for how they turn out. I'm responsible for how they behave on a regular basis. I'm responsible for how they view a father and a mother. I'm responsible for how they see God. I am called to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I am responsible. And I put them to bed every night and I say to myself, David, you are screwing them up irrevocably. It's going so bad. Every night I lay them down and I say, it's not working. But I am, I recognize the the fact that they are not mine. You and I have had this conversation. I would never point you out, Karen. I would never like single you out if we had not had this conversation. But you know this idea of Allison and this idea that he's not ours. She's not ours. They're not mine. They are his. And they're his. Yes, I'm responsible. There's an accountability there. But the same way that I feel that about my boys, I feel that about everything. Listen, I had three boys that were ruining our furniture, and you should have heard the lectures. 
God's given us this furniture. Is it ours? This is God's. Now, what kind of crazy parent argues that, right? Most parents say you don't draw on the furniture because I said you don't draw the furniture, right? You don't mess up the furniture because I... The argument should be they should know that everything we have is his. And we care for it and we honor it as his because we're responsible. We're not owners. We are stewards. And so everything that I view practically, I can show that by just the way I live every day, revering him as the giver and the sustainer of life. Second way we can be obedient to the scripture, we can repent where we have not revered life. I understand the heart of a person who protests in front of an abortion clinic. But the lady who's walking in those doors to get that abortion, more than an abortion, more than a finger pointed her way, she needs Jesus. And shame on us for acting as if the sin of abortion is some unforgivable thing that puts a scarlet letter on you for life. Abortion is a sin, but it's just as forgivable, even though I've never had an abortion. It's just as forgivable as any sin I've ever committed. If we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us all unrighteousness. Those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a truth. This is a reality. And we do not live according to Scripture when we try to win an argument and fail to win a person to Christ. Listen to me. I do believe that's wrong. But if you're here today, I want you to understand there's not judgment here in that. You understand? What's happening here today is I'm proclaiming a message of grace that says, with a repentant heart, hearts turn to him, surrender that to him, and he forgives. If you're a believer in this room, you know that. You've experienced it firsthand. Do not forget what you were. Don't forget what you, what, what you once were. Don't forget what you are now. A parent who believes this religiously and yet still puts my kids to bed every night thinking I'm messing them up. I realize that I don't uphold my own standard. If I don't uphold my own standard, why would somebody else? None of us do. That's the whole point. It's been done on the cross. Christ has paved the way for me and you. And so I would say repent. If you, if you, have, if you have had an abortion and have not repented of that, repent to him. If you've advocated or supported abortion and you have not repented, repent. But if you've been one who's pointed the finger and screamed and, and had a hatred for, repent. Turn to him. I would say finally, a way that you can be obedient to this is recognize the truth that's found in this passage. David says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Warren Wiersbe says this, God formed us as he wants us to be. 
And we must accept his will no matter how we feel about our genetic structure, our looks, or our abilities. God made you. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when you look in the mirror and you see something less than that, there's a worldview problem. You are his creation. You bear his image, his mark. And because you bear his image, you have this value to you that irregardless of how you feel or what you think or what you've been through, it's true. Look, I want to show you this. In my wallet, I do not normally have these, but I made a special trip so that today I could reach into my wallet and pull out a $100 bill. Because I'm rich. That's right. <laughs> you got it. I am super rich. Uh, anybody want this $100 bill? <laughs> Brooklyn. Brooklyn, you have your hand raised high. Now, wait a second. I want to talk to you for a minute. But I, we need to understand, clearly, I don't want to get your hopes up or anybody else in the room. I am not giving you this $100 bill. Okay? Uh, But let's say for a minute, Brooklyn, let's say you do want this $100 bill, right? Okay. What if I were to take this $100 bill and I were to smash it up and throw it on the ground? Would you still want it? Yes. Okay. What if I were to stomp on it with my shoe and I were to spit on it? Would you still want it? Yes. (laughs) See, yes. Because this $100 bill has value Not because of what's been done to it. Not because of what it looks like. It has value because of what it is. And if I wad it up and I throw it on the ground and I stomp on it or I spit on it, you can still take this to the store and you can buy $100 of whatever junk Brooklyn wants to buy. Right? Because it is still worth $100. Listen to me. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care how this world has bound you up and thrown you out and stepped on you and spit on you and run you through the mud. I don't care about any of that. Because for him, you have value just because of who you are. What you are is a person made in his image, fearfully and wonderfully knitted together by a supreme God who is the owner of, and loves us enough to make us stewards. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to find more resources to help you grow in your walk with Christ, check out our website at rootedandresolved.org.